All right, let's do this. Hey, hey, I, I want to kick off our time together this morning with three passages of Scripture, one from the Old Testament, one from the Gospels, and one from the New Testament. And, and the first is, is from Isaiah chapter 9, which was written to God's people when they were going through some very dark and very difficult times. Ever been there? And these words were especially addressed to uh, those from the tribes of Zebulon and Naphtali who lived around the region of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Again, things are rough, uh, times are dark, and the outlook is looking pretty gloomy. And Isaiah 9 opens up this way. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Amen? Amen. Okay, I'm dependent. <laughs> I failed. All right. Yeah. That time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. Now, now, some of you needed to hear that this morning, that this time of darkness and despair that you're going through will not go on forever. Understand, in Christ, darkness and despair are not and will not be our forever. Get it? Good. He continues, the land of Zebulon and Naphtali will be humbled. In other words, sorry. (laughs) It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. There are going to be some consequences for the choices you've made and the actions you took. But there'll be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, light has dawned. For to us, a child is born. To us, a child is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. He'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Yeah, darkness and, 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 and gloom, despair, they're going to end. But his greatness and his peace will go on forever. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And the next is from the Gospels, John chapter 1, and and I'm sure that, you know, these are very familiar words to you, and yet they're always so powerful and so beautiful. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Made his dwelling where? Among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And hey, did you catch that that John is declaring that that this uh, filled with glory and end of darkness thing that Isaiah was talking about, John is saying, guess what? The time for that to end 
has been fulfilled. It ended in Jesus, and especially around the region of the Sea of Galilee where Jesus spent most of his ministry. Brothers and sisters, God always keeps his promises. Amen? Always. Turn to the person to your right and left and tell them, God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. Always. And and now for the final passage. And and these are words that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, his first letter. He wrote about 50 A.D. Thessalonica is on the coast in Greece. And and, and you know what? I, I, I don't think we pause often enough to acknowledge just how crazy it is that every Sunday and throughout the week that we're reading words that were written 2,000 years ago. I mean, other than the Bible, how many read, people read words that are 2,000 years old on a regular basis? Not, not, other than the Bible, we don't, right? I mean, think about how many believers have read these words during the last 1,966 years or the last 717,590 days give or take, a day or two. Here's these words. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know what what will happen to the believers who've died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. I I don't know if you've ever seen people grieve who have no hope. Man, it's hard. It's difficult. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who've died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We are still living when the Lord returns. We'll, we'll not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down. God keeps his promises. He will come down from heaven with the commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from the grave that together with them we who are still alive and remain on this earth will be caught up in the clouds, crazy stuff, to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. For what? Forever. Forever. Listen, in Christ, our forever is not darkness and despair. It's being with the Lord. Get it? Good. So encourage each other with these words. Turn to the person to your right and left and tell them, in Christ, you're forever rocks. <laughs> Does. Amen. Hey, hey, let's pray. Father God, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity just to come into this place with a bunch of people who love you, who are chasing after you, who long to be more like you, uh, despite our sins, our flaws, and our failures. People who acknowledge the truth that grace is greater than our mistakes, our hurts, our circumstances, our weaknesses. And God, I pray that this morning, Lord, that your word will come alive. And and God, that you enable me to speak it in a way that is encouraging to us about who you are, and what your word is about, and what all of human existence is about. I pray that our hearts will burn this morning as the word is opened up. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, now this weekend, our, our, our faith comes from hearing, which is the Bible reading program that we've been doing at Maple Grove since 2011. And, and listen, the primary goal for having an ongoing Bible reading program is pretty simple. It's so that we who claim Christ and 
who, who call Maple Grove Christian Church our home, it's a, it's a, the plan is that we'll hopefully be in the Word of God on a regular basis, listening to and obeying His voice and deepening our relationship with Him. And a really cool and awesome secondary benefit, I think, is because I'm convinced that when God's people, when hundreds of God's people read the same stuff at the same time, I think some like really cool Holy Spirit supernatural stuff can happen. And and so this week in our reading, we looked at some of the events that took place immediately after Jesus had rose from the dead in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, And we also looked in the book of Acts, seeing Jesus ascend and seeing the church be born and Lots of great stuff this week, like Jesus hooking his guys up with a huge catch of fish, cooking them breakfast on the beach, uh, Peter re- Jesus reinstating Peter, uh, Jesus giving the great commission in Matthew 28, Jesus telling us in Matthew 16, 16, that those who believe and are baptized uh, will be saved, Jesus ascending into heaven, uh, the believers meeting together, constantly praying, waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit to fall on them. And I got to tell you guys, I, I believe that, that prayer always precedes power, right? You pray and the power comes. And, and with that in mind, I, I want to let you guys know, mark your calendar for, for April the 16th at 6.30 p.m. That's a Saturday. Uh, we're going to have a prayer and, and pray service because on on. On April the 17th, um, you want to know what just hit me? That's, that's the day I went delayed and listened to the military. It has nothing to do with anything. April, <laughs> I just popped in my head, sorry. Um, uh, but on April the 17th, we, we, are, we are starting our Pray for One series. You know, th- that the leadership, the staff that we're convinced is just going to, God's going to use in a huge way. Um, it's simply where we're going to commit to a prayer part of our DNA, where every day we pray a simple prayer, Lord, show me someone today that I can show your love to, right? And, and I, I, I want to see that thing blow up, you know, and, and, but prayer always precedes power. And so please join us for that, because I, I know that prayer makes a difference. Uh, we, we see this week, we read about the church being born in Acts chapter 2, and, and, and we and we heard those incredible words about these new believers that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to prayer, they were devoted to living in community, and they were devoted to taking communion, uh, the breaking of the bread. And these early believers, they had everything in common, and they sold stuff to help each other out. And God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Like I said, great stuff this week. And in Luke chapter 24 this week, we, we met a couple guys who lived in a village called Emmaus. It was just seven miles from Jerusalem. And, and now they were followers of Jesus who had gone into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover and to see Jesus. And we know that that weekend, at least uh, from Thursday to uh, Saturday morning, Sunday morning rather, turned out to be anything but a celebration for those who love Jesus. So early Sunday morning, while the, the ladies went to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus and came back with news that the body was missing, these guys decide to head out of town. Uh, They decide that they might as well just go back home kind of with their tail between their legs. I I mean, what what do you think they're feeling? What thoughts do you think are going through their minds? And so these guys are traveling the road from Jerusalem back to Emmaus, talking about all this stuff that had happened, suddenly a guy walks up beside them. It's Jesus, but they're kept from recognizing him. And Jesus kind of says, hey, what's up? 
Hey, 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 what are you guys talking about? And let's pick up a reading in Luke 24 from there. Uh, they stood still, their faces, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these last days? Jesus, Jesus says, What things? <laughs> I love it. He's just playing with them. About Jesus of Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to, the, to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that, that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. I understand their, their faces were downcast. Why? Because, because they had hoped for something different than what they actually got. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever hoped for something different than what you actually got? And usually that problem is, is we put our hope in the wrong thing. And see, they put their hope in the wrong Jesus, like a Jesus they made up, right? And, and say, we got to make sure that we're, we're hoping in the real Jesus and not make up our own Jesus who's going to do whatever we want him to do and because that's not who Jesus is. Jesus is who he is. In addition, they go on, some of our women amazed us. Women are amazing. Turn to the person right left and say, women are amazing. Okay? And, and, and ladies, I love chocolate chip cookies, all right, and stuff like that. So bake me something for that. That was nice. Kind of me. All right? In addition, some of our women amazed us. They, they went to the tomb early in the morning but didn't find the body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb, Peter and John, right, found it, just as the woman said, but they did not see Jesus. And Jesus is like, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe. You know, I, I got to admit that I think sometimes Jesus would like to say that to me. Steve, how foolish you are, and how slow to believe. All the to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so Jesus is talking. They, they arrive back home and they say, Jesus, we got a good restaurant in town. You want to grab some dinner? Jesus said, that's great. Sounds good to me. And and as Jesus breaks the bread and gives thanks, they recognize Jesus, and then Jesus disappears. And I love how it's worded in the Greek. It literally says, he non-visible became. I like that. He non-visible became. Poof. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It's true, the Lord is risen. Brothers and sisters, their hearts burned within them. When Jesus opened up the scriptures, their hearts burned within them when they realized what the scriptures were ultimately about. Now later in Luke 24, Jesus does the same thing with his disciples. Opens up their minds to understand the scriptures. Luke 24, 44, and 45. He said to them, his disciples, this is what I told you while I was still with you, 
everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened up their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Jesus opened up their minds so that they would understand that all of scripture has one ultimate purpose, one compelling story, one overriding theme, and that theme is the coming of Jesus. Jesus opened up their minds to the scriptures so that their hearts would burn. In Maple Grove this morning, I'm going to attempt in, at least in a very small way, to open up minds to the scriptures so that our hearts will burn. And that our faces, no matter how downcast, no matter what we're going through, will be lifted up as we realize and understand that not only does the Bible have one ultimate, compelling, overriding theme, story, and purpose, but so does all of human existence. And just what is that ultimate, compelling, overriding purpose, story, and theme? It is the coming of Jesus. Okay, so let's do this. Let's, let's walk through the Bible. Our text is Genesis through Revelation. That's why you got the extra large, supersized outline today rather than a half sheet of Scripture because I, I really want us to see this. It's a, it's a beautiful story. And, and, and none of this stuff am I making up, right? It's like all true. This is what the Bible is about. This is what human existence is all about. Right? If God created us, if Jesus is God's son, this is it. This is what it's all about. Uh, uh, the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament is Christ is coming. You, you see, when you, when you pull it all down, the coming of Jesus is pretty much what the 39 books, the 929 chapters, the 23,214 verses, and the 622,771 words of the Old Testament are all about. I understand from Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament resonates with the good news of great joy for all people. Good news that is intended to lift up our faces and to ignite a roaring, living, sustaining, and burning hope in our hearts. Get it? Good. Jesus is coming. Now, now Genesis, his coming is revealed, and the reason I say that it's revealed in Genesis is because it, it was planned before creation. In Revelation 13, 8, uh, God says that the lamb was slain before the creation of the world. Understand, before God created the world, before God, God formed man out of the dust of the earth and breathed life into him, Jesus' death on the cross was already part of the plan from the very beginning. Now, in the beginning, God created the world and everything in it. He created Adam and Eve, and he put them in a garden paradise. I mean, just imagine a world untainted by, by corruption and decay. It had to be awesome. But not only was the world they lived in awesome, the relationship they had with God was awesome. I mean, God, Scripture says, that God would come and take walks with them. I mean, think about that in the cool of the morning, right? You set your alarm. God says, hey, you ready? Let's go take a walk. Let's take a walk with God. And they had only one restriction, one command, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? Well, you know the rest of the story, right? They're tempted and deceived by Satan. They blew it. They disobeyed God. They sinned. Their eyes were open. They realized they were naked. They, they hid from God, and they were, they were booted out of the garden. 
And in Genesis 3.15, we, we find what many call the gospel in the garden. Genesis 3.15 reads this. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, even though, even though man turned his back on God, God did not turn his back on man. Like we read in 2 Samuel chapter 14, verse 14. I, I really like this verse. Um, all of us must die eventually. Well, not so much that part maybe. Okay, All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back when we have been separated from him. Oh, is that good? He devises ways to bring us back when we are separated from him. Amen? His grace is always greater than. And in Genesis 3.15, God reveals three things. Uh, that Satan would ultimately be crushed that the agent of that crushing would come through the seed of a woman, Mary, and, and that this crushing would only come about through suffering on the part of the crusher. And for centuries, Genesis 3.15 was the only star of hope that God's people had, and they, they clung to it ever so tightly. And then after the flood, in Genesis chapter 9, God gives his people another star of hope as he reveals to them that one day he himself will come and dwell in the tents of men. And then over 2,000 years before Jesus, God called Abraham. We read about this in Genesis 12. And, and God tells Abraham that one day, one of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that one of their descendants, and through him, one of, one of their descendants would, would bless all the nations of the earth. And that descendant was Jesus. And as God's first book to his people nears its end, God reveals in Genesis 49 that one day a rest bringer. Man, anybody use some rest? He says a rest bringer would come from the royal line of Judah, bringing a time of peace and great abundance. In Genesis, the coming of Christ is revealed, and from Exodus to Esther, we read about the preparations made for his coming. You see, in these, these 12 books, God prepares his people for Christ's coming in, in at least five ways. First, God prepares his people by delivering them. Now, as the book of Exodus opens up, we see that God's people have become their slaves in Egypt. And, and, and while in those shackles, they, they were taught at least two things. Number one, that they needed a deliverer. Number two, that they were not that deliverer, right? That, that, that they needed somebody to free them that they could not free themselves. And God became that deliverer. We read in Exodus 3, I, I, I love these verses. I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their sufferings. I, I, I want you to know, it, it, if you're going through a hard time, God sees, God hears, and God is concerned. If you're going through a hard time, I want you to know that right now where you're at, God sees it, God cares about it, and God is concerned about it. Amen? So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. I love that, right? Uh, we serve a God, right, who brings us up out of, right? He brings us up out of that land. He brings us up out of that land of bondage. He brings us up out of those dark and, and desperate times into a good and spacious land, a land flowing 
with milk and honey. We could say steak, right? We're like, milk and honey doesn't really, I don't really like honey, right? Whatever you like. A land flowing with steak and lobster. Flowing with surf and turf, baby. All right? All right? Okay, now you're like, okay, yeah, I, I won't go there. That sounds good, right? And, and so God delivers them by working mighty miracles, hail, frogs, and Nile to blood, death of the firstborn, parting of the Red Sea through Moses, bringing Pharaoh to his knees, redeeming his people, winning their freedom. Next, God prepares his people by give, giving them his law. You, you see, because God delivered them, the Israelites were not their own, and God therefore had the right and the power to expect something from them. And he says in Exodus chapter 20, and God spoke all these words, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Turn to the person you right and left and say, no other gods. No other gods. No other gods. No other gods. Uh, uh, understand, God prepared his people by giving them his law, teaching them about sin, uh, about obedience, about his holiness as Moses brings down from thundering Mount Sinai on tablets of stone the commandments of God. Next, God prepares his people by fulfilling his promise. Now, in the book of Joshua, we read of, of God's new leader conquering Cana and establishing God's people in the land that he promised to Abraham over 700 years earlier, reinforcing in them the reality that our God, right? Sometimes you look at the clock, right? Listen, if God said something, he's going to do it, right? He just has a different watch than you do, right? But if God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Our God is a promise keeper, and he kept that promise that he gave to Abraham in 2000, in 2000 B.C. by Joshua conquering the land. Next, God prepares his people by establishing the royal throne of David, who, through whom one day the true king would come. Finally, God prepares his people by building them a temple to worship in, providing a place and a system whereby messy, sinful people like you and I can approach a holy God. So from Exodus to Esther, God prepares his people for Christ's coming by delivering them, by giving them his law, by fulfilling his promises, by establishing the royal throne of David, and by giving them a place to worship. In the poets, we see God's people longing for Christ's coming with great desire. In the book of Proverbs, the desire is for wisdom to be incarnate, and that wisdom is found in Christ. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon exposes, exposes the futility of life without God. Solomon tried wine, women, and wealth, and he had all three in great abundance, and he still came up very, very empty, right? Meaningless. I, I understand Solomon discovered that true meaning and satisfaction will never come from anything under the sun, S-U-N, but it's only to be found in the person of the Son, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Have you discovered that yet? In the Song of Solomon, Solomon aspires for perfect love and commitment, which is only to be found in Christ. Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. I'll, I'll do the first line, you do the second line. We'll do it three times and then we can move on. 
I am my beloved's. Okay, yeah, when you say that, think about Jesus talking about you, right? I am my beloved's. I am my beloved's. Isn't that sweet? I like that. And in Job and Psalms, we have many direct references to the coming of Christ. Job longed for a divine mediator to stand be, between him and God. He looked forward to the coming of his Redeemer. And he says in Job 19, oh, this is so good. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And this guy was going through some stuff, right? right? Many times when someone's going through a hard time, we say, man, you're, you're, you're like Job. I don't know. Uh, you, you, maybe you're pointing in Job's direction, but, but Job really had it difficult. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. How my heart yearns within me. Yeah, that, that sounds a little bit like some burn language to me, right? He's burning to see God. And David, the psalmist, longed for the coming of God's glorious son, Psalm 2, for the great parable teller, Psalm 78, for the Davidic king, Psalm 89, and for the royal priest, Psalm 110. See, though David was the king, he longed for the coming and the reign, the forever, the perpetual reign, the perfect reign of the Messiah. In the next section of the Old Testament, the prophet's Look forward to Christ's coming with great hope and expectation. You see, they lived during the time when, when God's people had turned their backs on God and turned their backs on, on God's word and they bowed down to false gods and, and worshiped idols. And the people and their leaders were, were rotten and decaying both spiritually and morally. Wrong had now become right and, and God was reduced. And that's not a good thing. You don't want to, well, you really can't except in your own mind, God was reduced to a, a, a distant deity and, and, and worship had become nothing more than heartless religion, and not, nothing more than just pretending and performance. These people come near to me with their mouth but, and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Justice was nowhere to be found and the poor were greatly oppressed. And this Growing corruption would eventually lead to the dividing of the kingdom. Brother fighting against brother. Never a good thing. Never has good results. And the fall of Israel and Judah, <clears throat> as God judged the nation with the sword of foreign armies, Assyria and Babylon, and the once mighty kingdom was no more. It was during these perilous, dark, and difficult times that the prophets lived, and that is why they looked forward to, they clung to, and they spoke about with unwavering hope and expectation of the coming of a new and better kingdom. Isaiah, who's known as the gospel prophet, wrote in the 11th chapter of a kingdom that would be united in peace and harmony, a kingdom where the lion will lie down with the lamb. In other words, that all the barriers and all the walls between people would be broken down and all people would be included. And he wrote of a time when a, a new and better leader would rule over God's people. Isaiah 32, a king will rule in a way that brings justice and leaders will make fair decisions. Then, then each ruler will be like a shelter from the wind, like a safe place in a storm, like streams of water in, in a dry land, like a, 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 a cool shadow from a large rock in a hot land. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah looked forward to the coming of Christ and the healing that he would bring. 
He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was despised and rejected by man. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. It's Jesus. Like one who men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. Yes, the prophets looked forward to a time when, when Christ would come and he would heal the deadly wounds of sins. They looked forward to a time when the good news would be preached to the poor, when the captives would be set free, when the prisoners would be released, when the brokenhearted would be bound back up, and when the favor and grace of God would be poured out on all people, Isaiah 61. Jeremiah writes in the 31st chapter of his book uh, about a time is coming when God is going to make a new covenant with his people. Maple Grove, the message of the Old Testament is that Jesus is coming. And the message The story of the Gospels is Christ is here. The plane touches down on the runway. The last line is thrown from the ship to the pier. The car pulls into the the driveway. And suddenly all the energy and emotion of anticipation now shifts to an eruption of joy. The band is playing. The camera's flashing. The flags are waving. A husband embraces his wife. A teary-eyed dad holds a little girl he's never even seen before. And a mother hugs her son who's now become a man. We've all felt these emotions. The joy can be overwhelming. The wait is over. Our loved one is here. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Brothers and sisters, the wait that began thousands of years Earlier in the garden was over. The crusher had come. The Savior was here. And a great company of angels appeared in the fields outside of Bethlehem, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests, as baby, as baby Jesus lay in the arms of his mother Mary. And the baby grew and became a boy. He laughed, right? He ran. He played with his friends, he wrestled with his brothers, he worked with his dad in the carpenter shop, and at the age of 12, he sat down at the temple among the religious leaders of the day, listening, asking them questions, and Scripture says everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. The boy grew to be a man, and Scripture says he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. And at the age of 30, Jesus began his ministry and, and what a ministry it was. He healed the lame. He healed, he healed the blind. He even raised the dead. He calmed violent storms. He, he turned water into wine. He multiplied food. And he spoke with authority. And he spoke with divine insight into the hearts of mankind. In fact, one time when some temple guards were sent to arrest Jesus, like they came back empty-handed, You know what their excuse was? No one ever spoke the way this man did. Man, is that so true? And no one ever died the way Jesus died. Betrayed by a friend, abandoned by his disciples, put through a mock trial, beaten, spit upon, scourged, weak and bleeding, forced to carry his own cross, huge spikes spikes driven into his hands and his feet. Yet on the cross, he's still thinking about his mom, And he's forgiving those who are actually crucifying 
him. Father, forgive them. They have no clue what they're doing. They're as clueless as you and I are. He was innocent. The Jewish leaders knew it. Pilate knew it. Yet Jesus said nothing and did nothing to free himself. You know, the words of the hymn written by a guy named Ray Overholt in 1958 are true. You know, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set them free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Actually, he could have called a lot more than 10,000 angels, to be honest. Uh, check this out in Matthew 26. Uh, Peter has just whacked off a dude's ear. That, that had to hurt. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For I'll draw the sword, we'll die by the sword. I love this. Do you think I cannot call on my father and who will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Now, Roman legion was 6,000 soldiers. 6,000 times 12 is 72,000. In Scripture, we read of one angel, right, whooping up and killing about 600,000 Assyrians, right? So Jesus says, you know, he could have called... Uh, have you ever been in a stadium watching a football game, right? That, that's that many angels. He said, you, know, you don't think I could do that? You don't think the Father would, would send those angels right now? But how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? Jesus died and was buried. But on the third day, he rose from the dead. Maple Grove. Last week was Easter. Jesus was alive then. And guess what? He's alive today. Death and the grave cannot hold our king. Amen? Amen. He's alive. I mean, do you feel the burn? He's alive. And those who are in Christ will likewise rise to be with him in eternity forever. Brothers and sisters, the victory has been won. The serpent is crushed. Sin and death has been defeated. Death and the grave are destroyed. And as we said last week, Easter Sunday, because he lives, we have forgiveness and we have a hope and a purpose that can never, ever be erased. Get it? Good. Christ is coming is the message of the Old Testament. Christ is here is the message of the Gospels. And the message of the rest of the New Testament is Christ is coming again. Jesus is with his guys and he's telling them, hey, your job's not to figure out when I'm coming back. Your job is to be my witnesses in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taking up before their very eyes and a, a cloud hid them from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. I, I, I lived in Florida, in the space shuttle. Like when that thing lifts off, it's cool looking out your, your back door and you could see the space shuttle going up. You know, that's kind of how I picture just like, like looking up. They were intently looking up in the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, pretty big guys, I'm sure. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Like, hey, don't you all like, got somewhere to go? <laughs> I mean, isn't there something you're, you're supposed to be doing? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I understand, throughout the book of Acts and the letters of the churches, God's people, including us, look forward to his coming again. Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies 
Turn to the person next to you and say, you have a lowly body. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I won't do that. Transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his what? His glory. Is is that crazy? We're going to get a body like his? Colossians 3, 4, when, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Uh, Peter writes, and when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter tells us to look forward to that day of his coming and actually to speed its coming, to hasten its coming. John writes, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Uh, 1 John 3, 2, dear friends, now we are children of God, awesome, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Maple Grove, we like they should find it comforting and encouraging as we live in a rough and sometimes very dark, difficult, and wicked world to set our sights on the future glory that awaits us as God's people, to set our sights, to set our hope on his appearing, to set our sights and our hope, not on the short view, not on the here and now, but on the long view, on the forever and eternity view. Amen? Amen? Amen. Guys, this is not our home. We're just passing through, right? Jesus is coming again, and I'm not making it up. To take us to our true, our awesome, our forever home. Question, are not your hearts burning at the thought of his returning? And finally, what what was revealed in Genesis is realized in Revelation. As God unveils, the word revelation means unveiling, to unveil, as, as God pulls back the curtain and allows us to see Christ in all his glory. I mean, for 22 chapters, he just pulls, God pulls back the curtain for John and shows us the real deal and what's going on and what's about to happen. And listen, one thing becomes evident as the curtain is pulled back that when Christ comes again, and he will, it will not be like his first coming. When he was mocked, beaten, spit upon, pushed, shoved, crucified on the cross, clothed only in the blood that was pouring from his body. No, man will not beat him anymore. Man will not mock him anymore. Man will not do anything to our Jesus anymore. When Jesus returns, he will return in glory and he will be clothed with power and all the earth will see him and all the earth will bow before him and on his robe and his thigh, he'll have this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Brothers and sisters, the story of the Bible, the, the, the story and the, and the centerpiece of human history is Jesus, right? I mean, it's, it's Jesus. It's like, it's all Jesus, right? I mean, it, it's all about him. It, it's all to him. And it's all moving towards him. Amen? It, 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 it's all about Jesus. He's everywhere. He's everywhere. In Genesis, he's the seed of woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our great high priest. In Numbers, he's the bronze serpent lifted up with healing. In Deuteronomy, 
He's the second Moses. And Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. And Judges, he's our savior statesman. And Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. And Samuel, he's the faithful prophet. And Kings and, and Chronicles, he's the rightful king. And Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. And, and Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of our broken lives. And Esther, he's our Mordecai. And Job, he's a divine mediator. And Psalms, he's God's glorious son. And Proverbs, he's wisdom incarnate. And Ecclesiastes, he is our meaning. And the Song of Solomon, he is the bridegroom whose desire is for us. And Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. And Jeremiah, he's the shoot of David. And Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. And Ezekiel, he's the rightful king. And Daniel, he's the fourth man in the fiery furnace. And Hosea, he's the one who always brings back his adulterous people. And Joel, he's a stronghold, stronghold of the nation. And Amos, he's our burden bearer. And Obadiah, he's the Lord of the kingdom. And Jonah, he's that great foreign missionary. And Micah, he's the savior from Bethlehem. And Nahum, he's the avenger of his adversaries. And Abaca, he's a victor over Satan. And, and Zephaniah, he's the Lord of righteousness. And Haggai, he's God's signet ring. And Zephaniah, and Zechariah, he's the pierced one. And Malachi, he's the son of righteousness. And Matthew, he's the royal king. And Mark, he's the servant of God. And Luke, he's the son of man. And John, he's the word become flesh. And Romans, he's our justifier. And Corinthians, he's our sanctifier. And Galatians, he's our robe of righteousness. And Ephesians, he's the grace that saves us. And Philippians, he's the one for whom every knee will bow down. In Colossians, he's all the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. And Thessalonians, he's the soon returning Lord. And Timothy, he's the one who saves even the worst of sinners. And Titus, he's the one who pours out his spirit to renew and refresh us. And Philemon, he's that friend who sticks closer to us than a brother. And Hebrews, he is both priest and sacrifice. And James, he's the tamer of our tongue. And Peter, he's the chief shepherd. And John, he is the love of God. And Jude, he is the one who can keep us from falling. And in Revelation, Jesus is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. Jesus, he's everywhere. Jesus, he's everywhere. He's everywhere. And he's everything. It's all about him. It's all to him. Maple Grove, do these truths, do these truths that that all of Scripture and that all of human existence revolves around Jesus and the fact that Jesus came, the fact that he was here, and the fact that he's coming again. He is coming again. And, and, and listen, I, I, I live in this world with you, right? It gets hard, right? Right? It gets dark. It, it gets difficult. There's so much in this life that pulls you down, beats you down, and brings you down, right? But, but when scriptures open up, our hearts begin to burn, right? We realize that this is not the end of the story, right? It's not the end because Christ is coming again. And I'm here to tell you, and I stand upon the authority of the word of God, that whatever has you down, whatever has you feeling defeated, one day it won't even be in your rearview mirror. It'll be gone forever and ever because Jesus Christ is coming again, and he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Amen? Amen. Amen. It, let your heart burn. Because it's happening. He's coming back. We read in Hebrews. We'll close with this and then we'll sing. Christ was sacrificed once 
to take away the sins of many people, right? And he'll appear a second time, not to bear sin. He's done that, taking care of that, done deal, right? He's not coming back to do that. He will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. To bring salvation, to, to bring to you that home you're longing for. Uh, that, that place with no more pain and no more sorrow, no more tears, no disease, no divorce, no breakups, no heartbreaks, no trouble, no difficulties, no storm, no conflict, right? He, he, that's what he's bringing. That's what he's bringing. He's bringing his salvation, the things you're waiting for, this, this perfect world you always dreamed of. It's coming. It's coming. And he's bringing it when he comes. Amen. Guys, would you stand and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are. And, and God, I, Jesus, like those guys on the road to Emmaus, man, I, I feel like them at times. At times my face is downcast because I had hoped. <laughs> and, and what I got wasn't what I wanted. And, and, and God, my hope was just in the wrong thing. And God, I, I pray that, God, e e even as I talk it, I pray you just open up my heart and mind to the truth that you are real, that you came, that you conquered, and that you're coming again, that you overcame, and that because you overcame, I can overcome. And God, that all that comes against me will be defeated. God, that in you I am more than a conqueror no matter what comes against me. God, that you cause all things to work together for my good. And so, God, I just pray that right now we worship you. And, and God, that we fix our eyes on you, Lord. That the world doesn't want us to. The enemy doesn't want us to fix our eyes on you. God, I pray that right now that you just stand alone. And, Lord, we look forward to the day when you crack the sky and you take us home. Until then, may you find us faithful. And may we overcome by the power and authority of your name. Amen.